Then I began to realize that actually disciple making was not really on the agenda of the UK church. When Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples in Matthew 28, he does not say, go therefore and make church members. He doesn't say, go and make converts. He says, go and make disciples. Welcome, everybody. This is Simon Gilbo with Inspired. It's great to be back for another week of encouraging stories inspired amidst all the rubbish news outside that we've been bombarded with. We want to hear stories of, of overcoming uh, faith, uh, inspiration of God at work. And this week, particularly in the marketplace, we've got with us uh, Mark Green, who is a former ad man himself. Uh, I've quoted him over the years umpteen times in different talks. So I'm really a fan of his and his books. He's a former lecturer in a theological college. He's now mission champion at London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Welcome, Mark. Well, thanks very much. Great to be with you. Great to be with you. Yes, uh, Mark is, is a pioneer and champion for everyday mission ministry in general. He's done that for the last several decades, three decades plus, seeking to envision and equip Christians, basically all of us, to see the significance of not just Sunday Christianity, but Monday to Saturday, our respective contexts, and seeking to empower us to make an impact for Christ right, right where we are. So whoever you, listen, you are listening right now, this is for you. And uh, I'm really excited about uh, where this is going. So, Mark, I don't know much about your background. In fact, basically, most of the people we've had on so far have been uh, my mates, uh, but we've never met. But Adam, who edits these podcasts, he listened to you a couple of weeks ago. He said, you're brilliant. So I'm taking his recommendation. I'm trusting that. And uh, so let's take it away. Give us, give us your backstory. Well, this could be the end of your beautiful relationship with Adam, your editor, couldn't it? But <laughs> no. there you go. Um, so, yes, I, I was, uh, grew up in uh, North London, the, the son of a Ukrainian Jewish man, my father, and a Celtic-picked uh, Glaswegian wow. um, socialist mother who used to go to socialist Sunday school. Her father was uh, fought in the Spanish Civil War. Mm -hmm. So I grew up Jewish, but ish in the sense that my mother actually wasn't Jewish by birth, but she agreed to, to, agreed to bring us up that way and did so very faithfully. Mm -hmm. And then um, I suppose, you know, you go to school and when you go to school in England, you hear lots of stuff, lots of stuff about Jesus. And uh, I did and was always sort of interested in, I suppose, what you might call religion in general, in God in particular. And uh, at one point, I uh, actually got the part of uh, Jesus in a secondary school play. Uh -huh. and the following year, I got the part of God. <laughs> <laughs> so there was never nowhere to go after that. So I had to go to university instead, spent a year in Israel, and uh, then went up to uh, university. And uh, I suppose I was witnessed to by all kinds of people. There's some really impressive, godly men and women there um, with who who talked to me about Jesus, but I really um, I was interested in the debate, but I wasn't. It wasn't real for me. I wasn't really thinking. Well, you know, this is this is something to live by. Mm -hmm. In my last few weeks, really, last year, I'd uh, got a back injury. God used that. I couldn't play as much sport. I'd broken up with my girlfriend of three years. So I had quite a lot of time on my hands, and this wonderful guy, really, who started to come to talk to me. And uh, Steve, his name was, and Steve Wexler was kind of different in his approach. I, I suppose I'd had all the great apologists, all the guys who, you know, I'd sort of debate with, but somehow, or maybe I was just ready, it wasn't like that with Steve. And then I think literally three weeks before I left uh, university, I was sitting in my room. He was the other in the room and he said, you know, do you want to receive Jesus? And I, as, as your Lord and Saviour, and I said yes, and I'm sure he prayed a completely kosher prayer, and, <laughs> uh, and I said yes to it. But I have to say that at that moment, I don't really think I could have told you that I knew that I was a sinner and that I knew really what I was getting into. I think at that moment, there was a sense that Jesus was the answer. What was the question? Mm -hmm. And if I'm honest, it wasn't particularly, you know, that moment, I look back on it now and I realized there was someone in the room. Right. And I've, it was almost like I was being drawn into God. It was like an embrace. It was a moment of surrender, almost like a, a kiss, really. Uh -huh. And something happened inside me. A year later, I went through the four spiritual laws, one of the tracks that we had at the time, and just to belt and braces, make sure that I, you know, and, and I knew a bit more then, and I probably understood what I was saying. But it really happened in that room. All right. And was there a noticeable difference in you the next day? I think there was a noticeable difference in me that I could detect. I remember when I was, uh, this is three years later, when I was invited to go to America and my Christian friends were very concerned because I was 
going to go to New York, uh, which was, um, you know, Babylon on the Hudson. <laughs> and they thought, you know, particularly in the 80s, and, you know, this was this yeah. is not a good place for uh, nice Christian boys or even nice Christian Jewish Christian boys. And, um, and I said to my dad, you know, I'm having a second thoughts, you know, I think my friends are a little bit concerned that I might, you know, drift away from following Jesus. And he he said, uh, "Oh, I didn't I didn't know I didn't know that was so important to you." So I was clearly uh, not doing a great job at that point. Okay, in my own family. So you meant you mentioned Dad. How did in, what was the general reaction when you did tell them? It was um, very affirming, actually. Okay. I mean, I was. Um, I know that's not the case for many people who, um, you know, that can be for what you might call religious reasons for many people who who grow up religiously Jewish and they move away or they move on or whatever the right language is, they, mm -hmm. they, they put their trust in Jesus as their Messiah. Um, but um, no, for my parents, it was, it, it was fine. My brother was the person I think who was most affected. He'd gone to um, Israel and uh, been on a kibbutz for a year and he came back and he was adopted. So he was thinking of formally um, converting to Judaism. Um, so it was a bit of a shock when his 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 brother had become become a Christian. He became a Christian later as well himself. Yeah, fabulous. Um, so you went to Babylon on the Hudson uh, with some misgivings, maybe, or, or on your guard um, into advertising <laughs> of all industries. And and I mean that's probably a more challenging environment than most, I would have thought. Well, yes, I, I think that is the perception, and I'm not sure that Mad Men uh, helped anybody yes. to dispel that. <laughs> but uh, I have to say, in all honesty, I, the, the agency I was at had the reputation at the time for the highest level of integrity and honesty right. uh, with its with, with in you know with with businesses of any in the industry. And you may well say that, well, you know, compared with the rest, you may be okay. But it really was a remarkable culture. They mm -hmm. had this. Uh, many strap lines, but, you know, they were looking for what they called at the time, you couldn't use this language now, for, uh, for gentlemen with brains and guts. And you couldn't say now, you know, yeah, I think, sure. I think actually Ogilvy was, was highly well, head of the curve on diversity. I mean, they had the first female board director in, um, in an ad agency in London, a woman mm -hmm. called Monica Tross, but it was, it was really not at all um, politically nasty place to work at all. Um, so from that point of view, it, it, you know, people talk about toxic environments and there are many of them, but but this wasn't one of them. And have you got any stories from that time of, of God at work in and through you? Well, yes, I've got a few. I mean, what would you like? Would you like healing on the 10th floor of a Madison Avenue advertising agency? Yeah, sounds good. The day? You know, I mean, you know, there are stories like that. There are stories of people becoming Christians over time. Um, you know, I was... Um, yeah, both both somebody working for me and and our boss became Christians. I ran a couple of Bible studies in my flat at the time. Lots of people came along. Not everyone became Christians who came along to that. That doesn't usually work that way. Um, so yes, there were lots and lots of things happening. And I, uh, how can I put this? I think one of the things you know was the dynamics and. We've always got to be careful when we when we talk about our own context. One of the things about advertising, primarily young people, advertising people tend to be very open. You mm -hmm. know, they're, they're curious about people. They're creative, and you do quite a lot of travelling with people. You know, you go and see clients. You're in the car for an hour. You're getting on an airplane. You're, you're travelling them for four hours to go see a client or something like that. So you you actually have lots of moments to get to know people, um, to have conversations about other things in advertising and, and so on. Um, so I, I don't know, you know, it's relatively easy to, without engineering very much, to, to share one's testimony. Mm -hmm. And over time to build trust with people because that was the dynamics, I think, in other contexts. It's, it's not like that. And I, I did find, you know, I remember once um, there was this, uh, I was single at the time, uh, deeply single, as I used to say. <laughs> <laughs> deeply and despairingly single. And, uh, you know, an Englishman in New York who's a Christian and who's straight, as they would say in those days, if you can't get married, well, you're in trouble. And I, I failed to do so, not without a great deal of interest. I remember once, um, I, you know, interest on my part rather than... <laughs> no, you're sounding you know, good there. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's after me. I got to tell you. So I remember there was this uh, this uh, young woman who was working for me, and uh, 
how can I put this? So she was marginally more beautiful than Naomi Campbell. I mean, and actually she was a lovely, lovely person in every way. Uh, but she was not a believer. And, uh, you know, I was uh, desperately praying that she would become one. And one day I remember, you know, driving back from a client and I had an opportunity to share the gospel with her. I don't think I crowbarred it, but uh, she was not at all uh, interested. And you could tell, you know, there was a kind, you know, you tell an atmosphere in a car, you know, yeah. it, it turns a little bit chilly. And I realised that, you know, I'm, you know, don't don't bring this up again or I will hit you around the head with a baseball bat. Mm-hmm. And um, it was very disappointing because, as I say, she was very lovely. And I had prayed for her soul, as you do. And I remember about two years later, you know, uh, she stopped working for me, but she was working in another part of the agency and she was coming down in in the elevator or, or the lift, mm-hmm. whichever you prefer. And uh, I said, how are you? How are you? She said, oh, I actually said, I'm fine. And they said, well, actually... God, this really big issue. I mean, I mean, this this man's, in, in, you know, asked me to marry him, and I've got to make my mind up by by Monday. And uh, well, by coincidence, perhaps I I had in in my briefcase a book called Marriage Takes More Than Love, <laughs> which is a book by a pair of navigators called Jack and Carol Mayhall. And if you know anything about the Navigators um, as a Christian ministry, you'll know that there's marginally more Bible on the average page of a Navigator book than there is on the average page of the Bible. This book was actually (laughs) full of Bible verses and the gospel about the foundation of, you know, of a good marriage and so on and so forth. Totally the wrong book to give to this uh, New York power executive. So I gave her the book and (laughs) she took it. and And then on Monday... Once again, I'm going down, leaving the end of the day, and there she's in the elevator again. You know, I don't think this, you know, it happened once in the previous year, you know, but there she is again, by coincidence, perhaps you might say. And I, um, you know, she said, um, oh, she said, book, it was fantastic. It was just fantastic. It showed me precisely why I shouldn't marry this guy. Yeah. And then she said, um, yeah, I wish I had another copy to give him. And I'm thinking, can you imagine Here, honey, here's the book that made me realize you're wrong for me. Enjoy. Anyway, by coincidence, perhaps uh, another copy in my briefcase. So I gave up, you know, you know, I don't want to be a stereotype. I'm Scottish and, 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 you know, Jewish extraction. And this is costing me a fortune going up and down in this elevator. <laughs> but, um, so you never know, you know, I mean, I don't think she became a Christian, but you know what I, what I learned from that was, Within the body of Christ, we have wisdom for other people mm. when they come to things. You know, I was single. I didn't particularly have, you know, wisdom for how she should choose, you know, someone to marry. And I didn't have, you know, I didn't have, you know, a sound bite in the time it takes to go up and down an elevator for her. Mm-hmm. But I did have this book. And, you know, there's so many instances. The world is craving. People around us are craving for wisdom. And actually, you can see that in, you know, general magazines. You can see that on Twitter. You can see that in various feeds. You can see that in the, you know, the podcast industry and so on. Thirst for wisdom. Mm. And whilst wisdom isn't everything, but wisdom from above is powerful. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's a door. And I have prayed that she will or will have, because it's, you know, a little bit a while ago now, she will have remembered that when she really needed wisdom for her life to make a big decision, she got it essentially from the word of God Mm, and that she will come back to that. Mm. So, yeah, so that decade uh, as an admin was, I mean, it was during that time, basically, you sort of crystallized the importance of of workplace ministry. Did you say that? Well, I don't think I crystallized it at that point. I think what happened was that, um, you know, I was a very young Christian. I didn't grow up in a Christian um, background. And I was in this wonderful church um, small, really, by American standards, 120 members, 150, 180 on a Sunday. And one day they came and asked me to teach adult Sunday school on ministry in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And actually, I didn't know I was doing it right? because I didn't know there was such a category. Yeah. <laughs> you know, mm. I was just doing this thing because it seemed the natural thing to do. I was being discipled, natural thing to do. And they said, well, no, you, you know, you've got something to say. So uh, my roommate uh, bought me a book. And I started to teach this adult Sunday school class, which is one of the great gifts in America, particularly if you become a Christian late in life. You've got to catch up. And you can't do it on a 25-minute or a 35-minute sermon every week, you know. So being taught and being able to ask questions, 
you know, 10 weeks every term was just, just such a gift. So I, I taught this class and what happened was that we would have a sharing time. You know, what, what are you applying from this and what are you seeing God do? And after the third week, we had to cap the sharing time at 10 minutes because there were so many stories of people suddenly their eyes were opened and they were seeing how God was working through them and he was working through them in sometimes amazing ways and mm. sometimes just, if you like, ordinary, but nevertheless potent. And I realized through that Sunday school class that, you know, God can work through anyone, yeah, anyone, anywhere, any, any place. But what, what crystallized it for me, yeah, I suppose, you know, to be honest, I was asked by the navigators to speak at a conference, then by Cambridge Crusade. And I wasn't really, you know, these were local conferences. This wasn't a national thing. But I suppose people saw something in it. Yeah. And I remember one guy saying to me, one day you need to write a book on this, but not yet, which was really wise. And in the end, I did. I, I, I have written a book on well, a number, but this, that one was called Thank God It's Monday which, by the way, my mother regarded as, as the best book ever written. And uh, Simon, you know this, my mother, my mother was, ne was never wrong. <laughs> but what crystallized it really for me was when I came back to the, you know, to the UK and I suddenly realized I, I went to London School of Theology, which was marvelous. Mm -hmm. And I suddenly looked around and realized no one was talking about this. Right. There had hardly been a book written about workplace ministry. Sir Fred Catherwood and... Uh, the great Richard Higginson had just produced a book called Call to Account. But, you know, the, we're talking, you know, needles in a haystack of publishing. Mm -hmm. And virtually, I mean, almost no one really would ever say, you know, this is how you could apply this into your workplace or this is why your particular work matters to God. Um, and I suddenly realised this was, this was awful. And it was awful for two reasons, or lots of reasons. One of them was people's ministry and their calling was being withheld from them. Yeah. And instead of going in, going, you know, to be a waiter or to stack a shelf or to drive a drive a truck or to look after kids or to be an ad man or to be a lawyer, thinking this is important to God, I am serving His bigger mission by bringing wisdom, good products, good services, things that build people up in a variety of ways, whether that's taking the rubbish away or it's fixing their tap or it's providing food for them or whatever it might be. And as I do that, I minister grace and love. I rely on God for it and so on. Instead of thinking that, and he can be with me in all of it, you think, as many Christians do, well, you know, if God really, if I was really got it right with God, he'd call me to be a pastor or an overseas missionary. I'm really just a second class Christian. And this doesn't really matter at all. And when I've done this, I, I need, you know, to scuttle back and, and volunteer to do some stuff in the church or some stuff in a local charity. Both those things are great things to do, of course. But it just means that loads of people think that most of their lives are actually really a bit of a waste. Yeah, I think that's, that's I'm trying to remember, I, from uh, Thank God It's Monday, you talk about all Christians, uh, the, the completely wrong this, but, but, but people think all Christians are born equal, but full-time inverted commas Christians are born more equal than others. So there's like this unspoken hierarchy that goes something like pastor at the top and then overseas missionary or full-time Christian worker coming down, tent maker so long as it's abroad, then lower down elder, then lower down deacon, poor Christian, Christian and rich Christian at the bottom. And, uh, you, you know, we want, want to dispel that, don't we? Because every, there's it's a false secular sacred divide. Every job uh, it can be seen as a vocation if it's surrendered to God. And as you, as, again, I'm trying to, paraphrase from memory because I've quoted it many times, but the, the result is guilt, isn't it? If you rob people of seeing the workplace as a place uh, of ministry. Yeah. Well, that's a, you've remembered the hierarchy very, very well, except actually at the bottom of the hierarchy was not rich people. It was former advertising executives. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, feel lifted up, feel validated now. I know that's... No, yes, yes. I, 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 it was all to validate myself, that book. <laughs> Brilliant. So you left, but you didn't stay at LST. It was a fabulous season, uh, you, as you said, but you left to join the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Why was that? You know, it's one of those moments where there's probably the rational reason and then God was doing something in me, um, honestly. I mean, it was one of those where I couldn't not. I had said no, I think, twice. Um, I'd been asked twice to, you know, to apply and I, I, I said no. I was very happy at 
um, London School of Theology. And, you know, that opportunity to input into people who are at that particular college going to all kinds of walks of life, you know, both, if you like, um, mainstream um, secular work, so-called, and uh, church-paid work was fantastic. But I remember sitting in my office, and these were the days before you could email things to people, mm-hmm. and thinking, you know, why haven't I thrown that application form in the bin? And it was the last day to apply. And I'm literally sitting there, and the phone goes, and the chairman of LICC, Dennis Osborne, says, sir, and this is how he begins. He says, what are you thinking? Wow. <laughs> I said to him, I'm thinking, why haven't I thrown the application form in the bin? Brilliant. And so bit by bit, I mean, rationally, the reality was, and to a great extent still is, that LICC, founded by John Stott, was almost the only place I could think of where the core question on the table was, how do we empower all God's people for mission in the world, in the context they find themselves in during the week? Mm -hmm. And there were... Uh, some workplace missions, ministries, not necessarily big ones, but they were there, faithful uh, and fruitful. That, um, and there were some apologetics ministries. But this core question, how can we help all God's people do that in today's world and mm-hmm. preparing people for tomorrow's world? That was the centre. And whilst huge amounts of money went into training clergy, really, and huge amounts of money went into overseas mission and praise the Lord for it, the amount of investment in answering the questions that everyday people have, giving them a vision for their context was minuscule. Mm. And that had been on my heart all, all along. And it wasn't that I couldn't teach some of that at LST. It wasn't core to the curriculum, but I, it wasn't that I couldn't do something there. But... I just felt, you know, this is the cause, the discipling of God's people for their lives, for their everyday lives, you know, that's the cause. Yeah, so strategic. So how have you tried to address that then? Well, it's it's interesting um, how these things go. You learn along the road. um, And I suppose to begin with, we continued to work primarily directly with um, what you might call people going out somewhere during the week doing stuff, Um, you know, whether that's workers or, or, you know, or, you know, students or people who go to gyms or clubs or part of book clubs or whatever it might be, you know, where are you in the world? And then I began to realise that the reason why people were not being empowered, envisioned, discipled, if you like, for the workplace was actually a bigger issue than I'd seen Mm-hmm. And that actually was an issue that affected the whole culture of the church. The reality was it wasn't just a work issue. It was people are not being discipled for, if you like, everyday life in the world, where whatever it is. Yeah. And then I began to realize that actually disciple making was not really on the agenda of the UK church or indeed the evangelical church globally. And it's not that there weren't people making disciples. Obviously, there are navigators and all those sorts of people. You know, there's specialism. How do we help you grow? But at the time, it was very, very hard to find what you would call, might call a disciple-making church. What I mean by that is that often when Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples in Matthew 28, he does not say, go therefore and make church members. Mm. He doesn't say, go and make converts. He says, go and make disciples. And I wonder what the, the, the first people who heard that, in other words, the 11, 12, the, the, those around him, when he said, go and make disciples, what did they hear? I think what they would have heard was, go and have the kind of relationships with other people that I've had with you. Yeah. And that's what he did. That was his strategy. And what did he do? He ate with them. He walked with them. He taught them. He corrected them. He rebuked them. He trained them to do things. He sent them out. And then he asked them, how did you get on? Well, that kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. He affirms them. Yes, I saw this happen. He brings, you know, he notices their pride. You know, he brings a child to them and so on. And he grows them. That was his strategy. 
In other words, it was, he starts with 11, he invests, sorry, starts with 12, ends up with 11, invests heavily in them. Yeah. And so what one realized was the real question was, was Jesus right? And if he was right, we needed to change something at the core of the church. And I wrote this essay in 2003 called Imagine How We Can Reach the UK. Mm-hmm. And it was only 10,000 words, and it was published by the Evangelical Alliance as their whole magazine. And that was a really big moment. You know, here's another organization, the Evangelical Alliance, giving over their entire magazine to another organization to publish this essay. And they got right behind it. They did research, they put on consultations. And the thesis was a very simple one. There are two big problems. We're not making disciples. And there is the sacred-secular divide. That is, we basically think the Sunday stuff is more important than anything else, or the clergy stuff is more important than anything else, would be a simple way. And if we don't create disciple-making communities, then we will never really reach the UK. And what that triggered was the beginning of trying to find out how a local church can go from wherever it might be right now, which might be actually quite healthy in lots and lots of ways, Lots of healthy churches in the UK doing quite well, you know, doing Christianity Explored, doing Alpha, seeing seeing some seeing some growth, and lots of churches perhaps which are flat in growth but are healthy in other ways. But are they disciple making places? And we tried to find a disciple making church. I'm not saying there weren't any back in 2004, 2005, but we talked to a lot of people. I remember talking to Paul Bays, who at the time just retiring Bishop of Liverpool. Mm -hmm. And he said um, he was the convener of the missioners and evangelists of the Church of England. In other words, he knew, you know, all the major evangelists and missioners in the Church of England had a a kind of national view. And he said, I can show you preaching churches and teaching churches. I can show you worship churches and social action churches Mm. and praying churches and bungee jumping churches. I can show you anything. I can't actually think of a whole life disciple making church. Mm-hmm. So we had to go find out. And what we did was we went into the field and this is our method, really go and work with people. We work with 16 uh, churches and their leaders. We didn't know the answer. They didn't know the answer. Can we figure out how you change this culture? And we learned quite a lot. And that was led by a man called Neil Hudson, absolutely brilliant man. And that's where it began, really. So what we've tried to do is not just to develop material that helps individuals, but helps local churches. And then more recently, we did another field, load of field work with theological colleges. Because if you don't train the people who train the people, yeah. you're always still doing remedial remedial work. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, tell us about uh, your interactions with CMF. Christian Medical Fellowship. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Christian Medical Fellowship. Um, um, my wife was a nurse and they've got phenomenally good material on their website um, for all, all kinds of issues that people in the medical arena do. And about 18 months ago, they invited me to uh, speak at their national conference. And I was completely flabbergasted. I think, what do you want me for? I, I don't know anything about medical ethics. Um, I, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. Uh, I've, yeah, my dad was a dentist, but that hardly counts. My wife's a nurse, <laughs> but that hardly counts. You know, I mean, I, I don't really know your world. Why do you want me? And they said, and I, I, I couldn't believe what they said. And here's what they said, basically said, lots of people in the medical professions don't really believe that their work is significant to God. They, th- they see themselves as second-class citizens. Right. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, if doctors think, you know, that, mm. you know, that what they're doing is not so significant to God. I'm not saying they all do. And, you know, one of the people who was on the committee at the time said, well, yes, when I, when I became a doctor, I said to God, well, if you haven't called me to be a pastor, at least send me overseas to be a medical missionary. Mm. And then one of my team had been talking to um, a psych- psychologist who works for the NHS, and she had been thinking about, resigning her job because she couldn't share the gospel in her sessions, 
you know, you can bring healing to people, you can bring wisdom to people, but I can't directly share the gospel. And clearly sometimes you can, but very rarely mm-hmm. because of the power dynamics. You can. There's a lot more freedom in the medical profession than, than people from the outside think. But you can see where she was going. On an average day, that might not happen. And that's true of many jobs. On the average day, you're not necessarily going to share the gospel. So she was thinking of leaving. So I suddenly realized that the, the, this sacred secular divide, this sense of what's, what's a job that's pleasing to God, had even penetrated the medical arena. Mm. Hey, folks, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I'm loving the response we're getting from across the world. It's, it's just wonderful to see how encouraging and inspiring it is being and hitting the spot. Listen, if you are being blessed by it, I'd love it. Basically, this happens under the auspices of our ministry, Great Lakes Outreach, which works in the poorest and the hungriest country in the world, which is Burundi. We're having an incredible impact in the toughest of circumstances. We want to carry on supporting those local folks doing a great job. So if you wanted to, greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired you could make a donation there. I'd so appreciate it. Also, it's word of mouth, isn't it? So gossip this, these podcasts to other people, get them to subscribe, give us a great review. Absolutely wonderful. So grateful to you. So that's greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired. If you want to do a monthly, a couple of quid a month or, or a one-off donation, we'd be incredibly grateful. All right, now let's get back to the podcast. So we just talked about medical medical field and you're in the advertising agency. Give, give some stories of, of, of people uh, in the workplace and, and how they've been transformed in terms of being empowered and seeing fruitfulness. Well, and then there's, there's uh, scores of these, um, really. But the transform moment's an interesting one, I think. Um, so here's a story. Um, and uh, I was in a room with 15 men and I wasn't leading this thing. And it was, you know... Uh, there was a guy leading a, a session and he asked the question, what are you good at in the Lord at work? And that sounds like a very jargony question. And he was asking it of 15 Southern English people. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine that no one said anything <laughs> and you'd be right. Yeah. No one said anything because we don't want to, we want people to know we're good at things, but we're not going to say so. Yeah. Anyway, so he said, well, write down something on a post-it note. So we all wrote down something on a post-it note. And then he said, okay, you've written it on a post-it note. You might as well say it out loud. Clever strategy. And so the first person who speaks is a guy called Kurt. And he, um, he, um, he's kind of looking down at the coffee table when he's speaking. And he says, so, uh, well, I'm Kurt. Um, I'm a policeman. I'm actually in the armed protection squad. So, you know, he's got our attention, you know, armed protection. Yeah. Actually, I work at number 10. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but he's definitely got our attention now. And he said... Um, you know, it's a pretty macho team. And we're thinking, yeah, these people are prepared to shoot, to kill and take bullets and all that kind of stuff, you know. I mean, yeah. And he said, over the years, there's been quite a lot of conflict. But he said, over the years, I found I'm, I'm quite good at bringing people back together. Mm. And he just kind of then looked down at the coffee table and looked a bit embarrassed. And there was this silence in the room. And then somebody said, you've got a ministry of reconciliation. Yeah. And his face suddenly, it, I mean, he didn't do this. His, his smile on his face was wider than the Thames. It was, it was, it was like the light went on. And um, I've got a ministry of reconciliation. And then yeah. somebody else said, you're a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. And what happened in that room was that he had had this sense that he was doing a good thing there. Mm-hmm. But he when somebody named it using biblical language, put it in a biblical category, he suddenly realized what was going on. He hardly thought he had a story to tell. He was scratching around, but then he realized. And then you think, well, is it, is it a good story to say that somebody is teaching people the ways of Jesus's forgiveness at number 10 Downing Street? Yeah. I think that's a pretty good story. And what I've discovered also um, from people who work in what you might call high jeopardy jobs, you know, uh, soldiers, police people, firemen and fire people and so on, is that um, trust is absolutely critical in in high intensity, high pressure situations. You've got to absolutely trust that the person next to you is going to do what they're meant to do. It's absolutely critical. And of course, if the team is fractious and, you know, embittered, then you don't. And that can be 
a quarter of a second. And that can be the difference between somebody living and dying. Yeah. So actually bringing forgiveness, bringing peace really matters to the protection of our politicians. And then we went round the room and what happened was that people began to see, oh, this is why this is significant. It was a guy there was a carpenter. And he said, um, I get in in the morning and I uh, clock in and I do my day's work and then I clock out and then I go home. But he said a lot of people clock in and then they go play table tennis and then claim overtime. That's the culture. Mm. And actually you realise that he's going against the culture. He's not being conformed to the culture. Yeah. And that actually sometimes comes at a cost because he's not claiming overtime and other people are. One day the supervisor is going to come along and ask him, so how come you get your work done in time and other people are always claiming overtime? Or he's going to go to the other and say, how come Colin, that's not his name, can, can do this? And you can't. There's a certain resentment that can build up. Yeah. You know, goody, good, goody two-shoes and so on. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that's what was going on. So the first thing I'd say is that one of the, one of the beautiful things about the work that we're privileged to be a part of is that it's not just that we give people a fresh vision for how God might work through them. Often, we've just helped people see how God has already been working through them right where they are. And that, that generates confidence, uh, enormous confidence. And through that process, I remember that we, we began to realise that um, God's people are a lot more fruitful than they think they are. And the reason they're a lot more fruitful than they think they are is because what we often celebrate as fruitfulness is three things. An evangelistic conversation, mm -hmm. volunteering in the local church, and some kind of direct social action. Yeah. And it's great to affirm all of those things. And we're meant to serve in the local church. And it's good to be involved in social action. And it's great to have evangelistic conversations. But if you're in an average workplace, you are not going to have one of those every day. <laughs> Just no. not. <laughs> Was the day wasted? Did you not do something uh, for the Lord? So it goes on. And that insight, that notion that God might work through you where you are, is actually revolutionary for people. My, my actually favourite story of this is, is not of a worker. It's a, of a woman who was 93 at the time. Mm -hmm. And her name was Thelma. And Thelma was in a small Baptist church called Rainbow Community Church in, in uh, West Bromwich, which is, well, you know, but it's, it's just outside Birmingham. And um, when I say small church, I mean there was about 12 to 15 people in this church. And uh, the person who'd been called there uh, from Spurgeon's to, to lead that church told me one day that they, she'd taken the whole church, all 12 or 15 people, through uh, something we call Life on the Front Line, very mm -hmm. simple uh, video series. And... Um, she told me what it did. And Thelma, she, who had been in this church a long time, heard loads of sermons, Yeah, loved the church, did some stuff, but didn't think she really had a mission field. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then one day she, she realised she had. And it was the Asian convenience store uh, at the bottom of her road where she did her shopping, run by a family. Mm -hmm. And she suddenly realised, that's my place. And Thelma was 93, and so she wasn't as uh, sort of swift on her legs as she was when she was 89. And uh, <laughs> her friends were very concerned that, you know, going off to do the shopping in the rain or the snow and whatever, she's going to fall and hurt herself. You know, please let us do your shopping for you. But no, Thelma's going to be there. She's going to be there, rain, sun, shine, snow, ice, hail, whatever, because this is her mission field. Yeah. And suddenly she's alive. Mm. And she's going in and she's talking to them and, you know, they're hugging her. And eventually they, they start carrying her shopping up the road for her, mm -hmm. taking into her house. Mm -hmm. So she not only gets the interaction in the store, but she gets that. Then walking, the family walking her up the road and engaging with her. And the point about this is, you know, not just that she's praying for that store, for the flourishing of that family and the flourishing of their business and for the class customers that she meets and the community that goes into that store and so on. It's not just all the prayers and the ministry she has 
of joy and kindness and, you know, a good word here and a touch on the hand there and all that stuff. It's that she's excited to be, if you like, on mission with Jesus. Yes. Yeah, I love that. Brilliant. And, and you know, that's it. And when you get that, um, everything changes. Yeah. Everything changes. Mm. You could be, and it's not great to be in a boring job, and some people in very boring jobs. There was one guy, 23, and he he said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in this boring job, and I prayed um, that God would uh, give me a new job, and then I prayed, I asked my small group to pray that God would give me a new job. I was working in a factory. He was overqualified for it. Uh, and then and then I asked the whole church to pray, about 80 people in the church, so everybody's praying that he might get a new job, and God doesn't give him a new job. And it could be all kinds of reasons for that, you know. Well, maybe you should get some interview practice. Maybe if you, you know, didn't have purple hair and 18 nose rings and you were going for a job in a bank, you might have a better chance. Yeah. You know, it could be all kinds of things. Um, but God hadn't given him a job. And I remember uh, one of my colleagues said to him, he said, um, so... If God hasn't given you a job and you've prayed and your small group has prayed and the whole church has prayed, what does he want you to do there? And then he quotes Jeremiah 29.7. Also, seek the peace and prosperity, the shalom of the city, you know, which you've been um, sent into exile. Pray for it, for if it prospers, you too will prosper. And the guy suddenly realized, you mean I'm meant to be a blessing there? Yeah. And so that totally transformed him. And he started to get in, you know, 10 minutes early for his shift, began to develop relationships, started to pray for people without them knowing, then pray for people with them knowing. And, uh, yeah, was his, was his work boring? Yes, but what is, was his day boring? Much less so. And I remember one of my colleagues met him a, a, a few years later at, uh, at uh, Spring Harvest, you know, the big Christian conference. Yeah. And the guy said... Um, I have got a new job now, but I am so grateful for the lessons I learned yeah. uh, through that time. Mm. Now, I'm not saying it always works out for people because some people are stuck and it's really, really hard. But I am saying that when we realize that wherever we are at this moment, maybe not tomorrow or even next week, but at this moment, we're called to be a blessing in that place. God, give me eyes to see these people and this situation and this organisation through your eyes, please. Yeah. So you then you developed um, fruitfulness on the front line. Tell us about the, briefly the, the the value of the six M's. Well, we're trying to help people see what fruitfulness did look like, not just evangelism. So we came up with these six M's. Um, so, you know, we're called to model godly character and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, kindness, self-control. Mm -hmm. Well, that's fruit, you know, <laughs> that's fruit. Yeah. And then making good work uh, in the power of the Spirit to the glory of God. Well, that's something God wants to see done. That's a good result. Ministering grace and love, isn't that something that God wants to see? That's the third one. The fourth one is molding a culture. We know that he, he wants us to do, you know, create contexts in which people can flourish more. That's what he does in Eden. That's what... We try to do in our home. That's what church leaders do, try to create a context in which people can flourish as whole disciples of Christ. And although that sounds very grand and you can change a, a culture of a place by putting a tea light or, you know, on the dinner table in the evening, it makes it special. You can, you know, there's all kinds of little things you can do in a church or in a, in a, in a workplace, bring in chocolate biscuits on Friday at 10.30 and make coffee for people small things and then structural things, all kinds of things to shape the culture. Mm -hmm. And then there's being a, a mouthpiece for truth and justice. And again, that sounds very grand, doesn't it? it, does it is this Tiananmen Square? Is this, you know, um, is this climate change? Yes, it is those things. But it's also truth and justice is just snuffing out gossip. Yeah. You know, on the school gate, just snuff it out. Or somebody gets the blame for somebody, something at work, and you know it's not true. So you go and someone says, it wasn't them. Mm. Or somebody gets the credit and somebody else doesn't, and you, you do something about it, you know. So these things are sometimes, you know, they begin small. Yeah. Um, and then, obviously, there is, you know, being a messenger for the gospel. And so, so we came up with that framework, and what we found is that that's a framework that helps people see, oh, I didn't kill my, my daughter yesterday. Praise the Lord. <laughs> I am a patient father, or whatever it might be, you know. I begin to notice I did pray about that work and, and yes, thank you, Lord. Or, you know, 
two years ago, I wouldn't have treated that person after they insulted me in the way that I did. Mm. Thank you, Lord, for working in me. Mm. Or I, I managed to suggest to my boss that maybe that might not be the best thing to do, even though up to now I've been very afraid to challenge their decisions about anything. Mm. Not that they're necessarily even very fierce. I'm just very fearful and God has done something to me. I mean, all kinds of ways. Mm. Um, that we you begin to see that transformation in oneself and record it and share it with people. And that's been hugely liberating for people. Wonderful. And uh, you got a barista there? Oh, yeah. So an example of that would be, say, for example, what would that look like, those six M's in the case of a barista? Well, imagine you're a barista and it's, uh, you know, eight o'clock in the morning and there is a, you know, there's someone in the queue and they cannot make up their mind. And this queue, by the way, is going out the door and it's raining. They cannot make up their mind whether they want, uh, you know, a macchiato with chocolate sprinkles and almond cordial or a macchiato with chocolate sprinkles and a hazelnut cordial and you're just being patient and a barista you know so modeling godly character and then there's making making good work well making good coffee making sure that you you get the the coffee into the milk you know within a certain period of time so the chemistry works and so on and so forth making sure if you're making espresso you get that to the person who's drinking it drinking it really quickly because it's much, much better when it's hot. Um, all the things that you can do like that, um, ministering grace and love. You, you can't have a long conversation with everybody in the queue, but you ask God, so, Lord, prompt me. You know, who do I spend the extra 30, 30 seconds with? And you know, not just smile and say, lovely to see you, but ask them a question. Can't do it with everyone. It's not just about writing their name on the side of the cup. Who Who is that person that I can minister to? Or how, you know, who do I pause when I clean the table and I'm picking up the cups, who do I pause by and chat to? And then there's moulding a culture. You know, we all know that there are, in the, in the shops we go to, that there are people we are pleased to see and who seem to create a good atmosphere and people, well, it's, it's okay, it's just neutral. And in a coffee shop, you know, you can create a culture mm. by who you are. And then there's truth and justice. Well, who's on the rotor? Well, I, I you know, say, well, you know, Kasha seems to be have three Sundays in a row, and I know I, I ask not to do Sundays, but three in a row is too much. Mm. I will swap, you know, because that's not really fair that somebody does three Sundays in a row. You know, it's it's not just, so you do that. And then opportunity to share the gospel. Well, in your breaks, you might have it, and you might have it with your colleagues over time and so on. That's a barista. It's all there. Yeah. And the thing about those six M's is why it's encouraging is that you get everybody gets to do five every day yeah every day you get to model godly character every day we do something we make the bed we load the dishwasher yeah. or whatever every day unless we meet no one we get to minister grace and love and if mm. we meet no one we can send them an email or a text yeah. every day we either contribute to a positive culture or we don't every day we either tell the truth or we don't not every day do we get to, to share the gospel yeah all the others we get to do every day wonderful Hey, listen, we've run out of time, but an important question I'd really want to close on, uh, having wanted to ask a number more, is, is you, know, you talk about shaping church culture. Are you encouraged in that? Do you think you've, really, you've seen that? Well, praise God. Yes, yes, we have. And it's a hard thing to shape a culture. And um, it takes a long time for a culture to change. You know, it takes about two years for a church community to go, yeah, yeah, we, we you know, enough of us really want to go this way and we get it. And then to embed that takes five to seven years because there's lots of habits and ways of thinking that people revert to. Inevitably, it's the same. It's not just a church thing. It's the same in a business or anything like that, really, or a family. It takes time to change. But now, yes, we can point to uh, local churches of various sizes across the denominations who've not only begun this, not only gone, we really want to you know, disciple people for all of life and we're going to you know, the songs we sing change, the prayers we pray change slightly, what we put on the slides, you know, the visuals behind the slides, it's not all sunsets and nature slides, Be Thou My Vision comes up with a picture of the local estate or the school or the club or the pub or wherever it might be, you know, everything slowly begins to change. Yeah. We celebrate different people, we have people at the front, we interview different people, we make sure we don't just pray for the Sunday school teachers, but for also for the teachers. Um, we pray for the children on Backpack Sunday before the, 
you have the beginning of the year and say, you know, your princes and princesses of the Lord Jesus going into your school to carry the fragrance of Christ, you know, all the little things begin to change and then it just becomes obvious. Mm. That's how we do things around here. Yeah. We're always trying to help people grow and be Jesus's hands, feet, lips, eyes, where they are. Yeah. Well, listen, Mark, it's been absolutely terrific. Um, I hesitate to do this. At the risk of undermining everything you've just said, uh, could you give me, I hear you do a good imitation of Mr. Bean. <laughs> I do do a good imitation of Mr. Bean, and apparently because naturally I... I <laughs> I both look like him, and then when I throw my arms in the air, people think that's Mr. Bean, and they've come up to me and said it. But I, I you know, he doesn't. The imitations of Mr. Bean that are Mr. Bean like involve no words. Oh, sure. Yeah, you don't need to say anything. You just, you just, just look slightly pathetic and gormless and throw your arms in the air. All right. So, 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 do, so. so we can't do that on an on a audio-only podcast. All right, give us one of Sean Connery then. I can't do Sean Connery. That's actually, <laughs> I can't do it. That's the point. I'm not going to do something I can't do. Every time I've tried, I just, I just, it just, it's just awful. Oh, dear. I do lots of foreign accents, but you're not allowed to do those anymore. So. Oh, dear. Listen, all right, listen, just give, give us um, a heads up on what you, well, what would you like to plug? And we'll put it in the blurb. How can people be in touch with you or LICC, whatever? Well, licc.org.uk, loads of material for, um, for students, for young workers, for older workers, for church leaders, theological educators. Uh, all kinds of dif different stuff there. Um, if I were to plug one book, I guess it would be uh, Fruitfulness on the Frontline uh, of mine, because I think that's the one that goes across every age group and every kind of uh, church spirituality. Um, yeah. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for your time. I know you're a busy man. I really appreciate it. Guys, I hope you've been inspired and encouraged and stirred and validated in whatever line of work you're currently in. Or even if you're not in work, just, you know, you are to be, we are all kingdom people wherever we are, at whatever stage of life. So bless you, Mark. Thanks so much for your time. Well, thanks for having me, Simon, and shalom, everyone. God bless you in all you do. Great. Well, guys, I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have, I'd love it to, you to share it. It's a crucial message. Will you share it with friends? I'd love it if you gave us a great review on Spotify and iTunes, because basically that just means the algorithm gets us in front of more and more people. So more and more people get stirred in their faith. If you want to be in touch with me, simongilbo.com or any of the social media platforms. I want to thank Adam Thomas Steer for the editing. Mike Sanderman, fantastic job, both of you. Mike on the mixing. God bless you loads. See you next week with another fantastic guest. Toodaloo.